Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, well, this morning we're going to talk about the blind can see from John chapter 9. I'm going to begin by reading the first seven verses and then we'll go from there. John 9, 1 begins, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pause there for a moment. Ask the Lord to bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. John 9 begins with a story of Jesus healing a man born blind, just as we've just read. And when they see him, when they first encounter him, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, whose sin caused this man to be born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? You see, that question presents for us a partly true but incomplete and completely faulty view of sin and its effects in the world. In every occurrence of brokenness in the world, we have to ask, is it a direct result of sin? That's the issue that is being brought forth to us here today. And my answer to that question for us is both yes and no. Yes, in the fact that all brokenness is a result of sin, no matter what form that it might be born out in, whether it's illness or disease or uh, a calamity or, or disaster, whatever the case may be, all brokenness is a result of sin. But the answer is also no, because not every occurrence of illness or disease or calamity or disaster, etc., whatever form it may show itself in, not every occurrence is always a direct result of a sinful act. But we must remember this, friends, that all sinful acts are part of the greater brokenness in the world. And that's what we're going to see today. You see, so often when we see brokenness, we want to think that it had nothing to do or I had no part in that, whatever the form may have been, whether it was directly associated with us or completely disconnected from us in this world. We want to, if we will, remove any responsibility. But we must never forget that all of our sin is not completely separate from others. You hear it said this way, well, my sin doesn't affect anyone else. That couldn't be more false and more unbiblical in our understanding. Rather, as Christians, we understand that our sinful acts are part holding a greater responsibility even for brokenness in the world because of what they represent. Hence the reason we hold forth the good news of Jesus Christ. But 
But what Jesus shows us here is important. Now, I'm going to take more time on these first 12 verses this morning because I need to frame an understanding for us, which is what I'll move into in just a moment. So I want you to be prepared for that. But I need you to stay with me till the very end because what Jesus is going to say might be very different than what you think is going to be said. Jesus instructs his disciples to view brokenness in a different way whatever form that it may reveal itself in the world. Christ followers view the world by the potential for God's glory to be displayed when the gospel is believed. That's what Jesus is saying here. And we as Christians work to spread the light of life amidst the darkness of brokenness. And so that's what he does. He spits in the mud. Or he spits in the dirt and makes mud. He anoints the man's eye with that mud. And then he sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash. And the man did as Jesus said and he came back seeing. Friends, God wants to display his glory through redemption among the world's brokenness. I want you to see that this morning. That, that's not even the main point of the sermon, but it is the on-ramp to get where we need to go today. God wants to display his glory through the brokenness of the world. Do you believe that? Well, we're going to be challenged this morning to live in such a way that that statement is true. Evil and brokenness run rampant in the world because sin remains. Abortion continues. Racism burns. Hate explodes itself, trafficking multiplies at staggering rates. And friends, we should never turn a blind eye to the great atrocities in the world. As a matter of fact, they create, just as this situation creates, great opportunities for Christians to run in and to address those atrocities, those calamities, but to address them in a way that brings greater meaning to the answer that we give than just resolving the situation that is. The gospel heals blind eyes to address spiritual brokenness in the world with real hope by sharing the good news of Jesus and serving to meet needs in his name. Today I'm praying that God will grant to us the ability to see as Jesus heals blind eyes today and that's what the main point of the message today is Jesus opens blind eyes to see God's glory in all of life you know when we see something it provides a new perspective doesn't it when when you can then actually see it and when you gain that new perspective it gives to you a new understanding well I, I want to provide for you four new perspectives that grant to us new understanding of the work of God in the world today. And that's where we're going to dial back in a little deeper on these first 12 verses as I show to you this new perspective that Jesus grants to us in the midst of gospel mission. Perspective number one is I want us to see a right perspective of gospel mission. You see, what Jesus does is when he sees this man who's been blind from birth, the disciples pose a very difficult question to Jesus. Was it his sin that caused him to be blind or was it his parents' sin? In other words, the calamities, the difficulties, the brokenness of this world, whatever form they may take, 
They believed that they were a result of sin. And while that is true, they assigned the occurrence of this brokenness to a specific sinful act itself. And that's where it became faulty. There's a reason we do that, and we're going to see that. We had no reason to question whether or not their question to Jesus was genuine. Uh, we, we, we know that it was most likely born out of a heart of compassion, wanting to help this man. They had seen Jesus heal many people, right? And to solve the brokenness that people lived in. But Jesus wanted to use this opportunity to show them the greater brokenness that he came to redeem in the world. And that's what he does here. He gives a new perspective. And the new perspective that he teaches in these first seven verses is to see a right perspective about the gospel's mission in the world. You see, his response to the disciples is a directive for Christians for how we ought to live every day. Our first concern with the brokenness of the world should not be so much the why. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned with that, but it's not our first concern as much as the what. The what. You see, our time on earth is short. That's what he tells us. And the darkness of need is great. And Christians should live in such a way that we leverage all of our life, all that we have, all that we are capable of, in order to tell all the world about Jesus. That is our first priority. That that we address the why of brokenness, uh, excuse me, the what of brokenness, even more than the why. And so he teaches four ways in which we can do that in the world. Look at verse 3. The first thing he says is this. It was not this man, it was not that this man sinned, excuse me, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What's he saying? He's saying, you know, don't get caught up in arguing about what this might be and the philosophical uh, arguments that might establish the understanding of of why this happened. Rather, engage in this, that this man is blind, and, and in this brokenness, there's an opportunity for God's glory to be displayed in the world. And so the first thing that the gospel does is we live all of our life to leverage the gospel message to all of the world is it sets our perspective on displaying God's glory. We live for the glory of God in all of life. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter where you go and who you're with, God wants his glory to come in and through your life everywhere, everywhere. But you see, when we let the world and its philosophies, when we let Satan and his lies and deceit, when we let our own sin define and explain the world for us, we'll always look at brokenness in a way that removes any personal responsibility. Whoa, what stupid thing did they do to cause this to happen to them? And friends, when we do that, we're looking to assess fault and blame just simply so we don't have to deal with it. But you see, what the gospel does is not distance us from brokenness, but it brings us near. Not that we might engage in it, but that we might bring light to its darkness. That's our perspective because God's glory wants to be displayed in the midst of the world's Brokenness. Jesus is not telling the disciples to deny brokenness in the world. 
Listen, I want you to understand me today. Jesus is not saying that physical healing, physical provision in this life, a physical uh, ministry to people who find themselves in calamity, whatever the case may be. I'm not saying, nor is Jesus saying, those things aren't important, okay? Jesus goes through the scriptures, and time and time again, he meets people's physical needs in this life. That is important. He's healed people. He's fed people. He's given them drink. Time and time again, he's met physical need, but that's not the point he's making here today. Rather, in the midst of a need, he's showing a much greater darkness that is in the world. And so he's not telling his disciples to ignore or deny brokenness, but rather he directs them that in the midst of all brokenness, we should never miss the opportunity to proclaim hope and trust in God's power in every situation. You see, hope and trust in Jesus is the Christian strength for every person in every situation. Listen, friends, I heard a pastor say one time, if we had $10 billion, we could save the world's water problem no we couldn't you know why because evil dictators still rule countries and that money would never be applied to where it were but if in a perfect world we were able to apply whatever amount of dollars needed to be applied to solve the physical need the spiritual need would still remain And the point that Jesus is making here is we can meet every physical need in this world and still leave a person damned to an eternity of separation from God. Hope and trust in Jesus is our strength. And it's our hope to give to every person in any situation. And so every time we see brokenness in the world, if we want to participate in the mission of God as we're called to do, we must see that God wants to display his glory. Even if we can't solve the immediate crisis or need, God can still be glorified. The second way that we need to understand God's mission in the world is that the mission of the gospel, the gospel motivates us with a redemptive urgency. Look at verses 4 and 5 again with what he says. This is where he is turning their focus just from the immediacy of the need to the ultimate need that is in front of them. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. In other words, we're here for God's mission. That's what we should never forget, Christian. We are here for God's mission in this world. That's why he has saved us. That's why he has left us here. But night is coming when no one can work. We're on the clock. And there is a time when it will end. Verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, let me say this. Some of you might argue, but didn't Jesus ascend? So he's like not in the world anymore in the light. Yes, but who is the light now? Matthew tells us what? For we are the light of the world. That's what Jesus says to us. We are the salt of the earth. That's what he is saying even to his disciples Now, as long as God leaves us here, the hour to minister in his name is at hand. We live, because of the gospel, with a redemptive urgency to address brokenness in the world that we might bring the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every need. There is a right time to do the Lord's work. And the timing, friends, the timing of opportunity for gospel ministry, hear me, It rarely occurs conveniently. 
If you're waiting for a convenient time to serve God's will for your life, trust me in this, it will never arrive. Gospel ministry almost never arrives conveniently. Rather, when it arises, it's almost always at inconvenient times. Almost always. Man, I don't have time for this right now. I'm busy. I've got a thousand other things on my mind. Gospel opportunity for ministry usually arises when we feel our weariest. Oh, I would love to do that, but I'm just tired. Man, I have expended all of my energy, all of my resource, all of me. It's done. I'm done. I need some me time. Gospel ministry rarely occurs conveniently, but it usually presents itself in a way that makes us feel completely inadequate. Whoa, that's not my business right there. I need to call the professionals. Right? It's the funny thing about it. If God brings it up in front of you, he wants to involve you. If he brings it up around you, he's going to bring you into it. But Jesus teaches that we must do the work while we can. The great promise of serving in Jesus' name is this, that when we reach the end of our strength, even if that's where we begin, Jesus provides the rest. That's where we trust, friends. And that perspective leads us to a new understanding that Christians live charged with a redemptive urgency. Redemptive urgency. Urgency, But another way that we need to understand this is in verses 6 and 7. Go there and let's look at that together. Verse 6 said, Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made the mud with saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. You see, here's the thing. Jesus didn't go, Listen, I know you're in a really bad way but I'm going to keep this on a spiritual level. And so he began a theological dissertation with the guy, right? He didn't do that. What did he do? He did everything that he could do, right? He healed the man. Now, let me say this. We we, very seldom do we go about healing the way Jesus did, okay? But we can do something. And, And that's the point I think that Jesus is making here in the midst of this. He addresses the immediate need But he's going to address the ultimate need as well. He tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And John tells us that Siloam means sent. You see, he makes a point of that. He uses the name of the pool to bring theological significance and meaning to what Jesus is saying. Not just to the man, but to every Christian for what he's communicating through his gospel here. John wants us to understand what Jesus does. For the work of Jesus in the Christian's life is a preparation for the work of Jesus going forth through the Christian's life. What God is doing in you is not just about you, friends. It's about what God's doing in the world. But if our perspective of God is all about me, we'll think it's just for me. So we can cherish it here. Instead of seeing this life that I live as not my own, but having been purchased with a price, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore being lived in such a way that is for him. That's what John is showing us here. You see, this is not new for us as a church. From the very beginning, we've taught in our covenant membership teaching that being saved by God and being sent by the Lord Jesus Christ in his mission are inseparably linked in the life of a Christian. 
Jesus' power that saves is the same authority that sins. And that's how we must understand God's work in the world. The fourth one that he gives, verses 8 through 12, we see the man comes back. They see him as the man that used to be blind, but now he's not blind. They recognize him as the beggar, but he's nothing like he once was. Here's what we see, that the gospel empowers a faithful testimony. There is a testimony that comes back in this man's life, and it's a testimony of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Incomplete? Absolutely. This man didn't even understand everything there was to understand about Christianity. But listen, you don't have to be qualified by a complete understanding in order to be sent to bear a faithful testimony. You see that? He said, I don't even know what I would say. Good. You're probably in the best place to be used by the Spirit to go tell people about what Jesus has done for you. Because if we'll go in obedience, the Spirit will provide the power, the strength, even the language that we speak with. That's what he's wanting to tell us. They couldn't believe it. I mean, this man had been blind from birth. He was a beggar. But he wouldn't let them think otherwise. He told them all, I'm the man who was forever changed by Jesus. Shock and awe. That's what was going on here, friends. Shock and awe. But it was not only the strategy, the the faithful witness that we see here is not the only strategy that God ordains to move his mission forward. But friends, it is the first strategy. It is the principal strategy that God sends his mission forth in the world. It's simply this. God moves his mission forward in the world by a faithful personal testimony that's what we see here that's how we need to understand this this new perspective of God's work and what John does for us in these first 13 verses is he sets the stage because there's going to be a storm that blows against it but Jesus wants you to see Christian a new perspective on his work in the world and it's this God saved you To live with redemptive urgency as an ambassador of his redeeming and reconciling power with God amidst all the brokenness in the world. That's the first new perspective that gives our understanding of what God is doing in the world. The second perspective that we gain is to see this, verses 13 to 34. We see how the work of God perseveres in the face of opposition. We're going to move a little faster through these verses because we're dealing with the religious folk and they're just not as important as Jesus is. But it's important for us to see how it opposes us. We see how the work of God perseveres in the face of opposition. It happened on the Sabbath and so the people told the Pharisees because the Pharisees were the rule keepers for the Sabbath, right? We've seen this. This is a beat up storyline but it's one that they keep running back to. And they draw the man in and they say, what happened to you and how in the world did it happen? As soon as he begins to tell them, they know immediately who it is that they're dealing with. It's that Sabbath breaker that we want to kill, but ah, we can't get our hands on him. He's like a slippery pig. They opposed the work because it didn't strictly adhere to their Sabbath rules and serve their ends and their good. You see, God's mission, as you live it out, always confronts religion by confusing the rules. 
right? But the rule isn't the problem, friends. The rule's not the problem. The problem is that the legalism of our heart, that desire to save ourselves, makes the rule serve ourselves or serve religion, if you will, rather than leading us to worship God. You see, that's what Sabbath was all about. Sabbath was ultimate rest on a regular basis to say one thing. I'm going to hammock all day long because God's got this every day. He can take care of me today. That's what Sabbath is all about. Sabbath is resting to remind the world, but most importantly to remind me that it's okay for me to check out one day a week. Why? Because it's worship and God's got this already. But rather, they had created so many rules that the breaking of one rule, you took three too many steps, you might as well have murdered someone. That's how they perceived of it in their life. You see, religion, though, always follows the same path to silence and to discredit a faithful witness of the Lord. When our motivation within our own heart is to serve, or excuse me, secure and protect, that, 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 that we do the same thing that religion does. That's where how, how religion and self-righteousness lives in our own heart. And, and what they try to do here is they don't like the testimony that he's given. And so what they do is they just create a lot of chaos and confusion. This was first century fake news, people. It was clickbait because they couldn't discredit what he was saying. And so they had to throw a lot of chaos out there to distract the people from hearing it. That's what's going on here. Don't think that's a new strategy in the world in which we live. It's always been here. And so they try a second time. This time they turn up the heat. Verses 18 through 34, they bring his parents in. And they say to his parents, we want to know, was he blind from birth? And how in the world did he see his or get his sight? And the parents, John's telling us how they, they begin to bully his parents, basically. You see, bullying was a problem long before the 21st century because bullying is the world's modus operandi for how it shows power. And we know that, that they were trying to coerce a false statement out of them because it tells us the parents were afraid of their reaction if they told them the truth. And so they just denied any knowledge of the whole thing. I, I know he's our son. Have mercy, we've got no control over him, right? And they dismissed it in that way. And so they bring him back in. And so they begin to pound him a second time, trying to leverage their power to change his testimony. But friends, there's one reason why their bullying tactics don't faze him. He's not there to win an argument. He's just there to tell them this. I was blind. But now I see. That's all I got. But that's enough. Because that has changed my life forever. He just tells them what he knows. You see a personal testimony of God's saving work in our life. It removes the demand for us to have to win every argument and just simply to share what it is that God has done in our life. And man, they pound against him. And look with me at verse 30, what he says to them. This is his response. This is a man who doesn't claim to have all the theological answers to their questions. He just says this. Why? This is an amazing thing. I've been blind from birth and now I see. But you can't rejoice in sight because it broke some rule that you will not release. 
You can't enjoy what God has done because it's threatening the place that you sit in power in the world. He said, you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. He's threatening to you, isn't he? I see the man who was healed here. He's coming back at him now. But he's not coming back at him in a vindictive way. He's just exposing the ignorance of their darkness. He's exposing the ignorance of their unbelief to go, you know what? You don't want to believe, and that's why you're trying to discredit my testimony. He said, he's given me sight, but you don't understand it. And so you think everybody else ought to bow to your ideology and your lack of understanding. It isn't happening with me. I know what I know, and I know what he did. And then he goes on in verse 31 to say this. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. What does James tell us? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man prevaileth much. That had to be offensive. The religious leaders were just told, listen, God doesn't hear your prayers because you don't believe in him, right? But I'm not even an expert in the matters of theology, and God heard my prayer. Why? Because I was a man who knew of my need for God. And that's the only qualification you need to come before Jesus, is to understand your need. Verse 33, verse 32, excuse me. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. You never heard of anything like this. And if this man weren't from God, he couldn't do what he did. You know what that man told them? The same thing Jesus has been telling them the whole time. I come and do the works of my father, but you don't recognize him because you don't know my father. But the works that I do should tell you that he's my father and therefore I'm his son. But you deny him because you don't want to believe. You don't want to believe. He plainly states what Jesus did and why it is that it proves that he's God. You see, the real sight, friends, that this man received was that he saw the emptiness and the deception of religion and self-righteousness because he had been touched by the true power of God. That's the real sight that he gains today. Let me ask you this. Have you seen the emptiness of religion, the emptiness of self-righteousness in your own life? How, How disappointing it really is, how devastating it can be, when you hold to things but you don't accomplish what they promise and they never provide that? Friends, let me ask you this. This might be another way to answer that question. Has religion ever accused and intimidated you to a false witness? Well, I can't remember when I stood before the Pharisees last. Um, But, uh, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Here's what it would sound like in our day and time. Have you ever talked about your knowledge of God in order to make others think you really know what you're talking about. All the while, your heart within you is going, what are you talking about? (laughs) Right? That's religion. That's self-righteousness. Because you're trying to make people think of you in a way that you want to be thought of when you're hiding the whole time the way that you really know who you are. Instead of just going, hey, I was blind, but now I see. Jesus did it, had nothing to do with me. Every time we put our face forward that doesn't equal a true reflection of our heart, we're caving to religion and to self-righteous intimidation. Maybe you've looked at another and you've said this. You saw them in their state of need or their 
You've thought to yourself, well, they must have deserved it. Obviously, they made a stupid decision. Obviously, they did something dumb, and that's why they are the way they are. That's the point of the blind man. And that's the nature of the question, not only that the disciples led with in a more compassionate way, but that ultimately the Pharisees will argue for that. Well, you're just a blind man. You're, not, you're a sinner. You're not worth anything. They dismissed him. Friends, that's religion. That's self-righteousness. When we can dismiss ourselves and the responsibility to love other people, sometimes in practical ways, but always, always, friends, in faithful ways of sharing that testimony. Anytime we can dismiss and excuse others, we're bowing to the intimidation of religion and self-righteousness to devalue them as a measure of self-protection for us. That's religion. It's damning to our soul just like it's damning to the world. The question is, do you see? Do you see? You see, all the insinuation in the world could not coerce this man to doubt what he knew to be true from Jesus. All the intimidation did not scare him. All of the interrogation did not leverage him to change his story. What Jesus wants you to see is a new perspective on his work in the world. That God's work within us perseveres against every opposition in this way. By faithful testimony. Listen, do you know why you don't persevere? Here's the reason why you cave in those situations and you give in to religion, you give in to self-righteousness. Number one, because you don't have a testimony. You've never come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sins and you've asked Jesus to save you and to be Lord of your life. That would be understandable because religion and self-righteousness are the only other options that you have and that you live in. So you don't have a faithful testimony. So the pressure is going to cause you to cave. But there's a second reason too. And this is for those who do claim to be Christians. You have a testimony, but you never use it. You never share it. And the reason you cave is because you're not, do, or you're not sharing the only thing God's ever done for you. And friends, I just want you to know this. You, you think that the armies of the world are going to attack you. I'm just telling you, the sharing of the faithful testimony is the courage and the strength and the boldness to persevere in the face of anything that the world throws at you. You don't have to be a theological scholar or an expert apologetic. You need to know one thing. Jesus changed my life. And I don't care what you say, you can't take that away from me. That's all. That's all this man did. Say whatever you want. Nothing like this has ever happened, but you've been able to dismiss it. Nothing like this has ever taken place, and you can't figure out why you can't reproduce it. I'm just telling you this. I was blind from birth, but today at the age of 40 years old, I see. I see. You're going to have to figure out how you can deal with that. I'm just going to receive it. That's all faithful testimony. And then verse 35, let's go there. See this third perspective that gives us new understanding. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and so he went and found him. He said this, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. 
and he worshiped him. Here's the third perspective that gives us a new understanding. We see how Jesus saves when the gospel goes forth in the world. Man, how embarrassed must the Pharisees have been to have a completely theological, theologically ignorant man in front of them? I, I mean, I don't know all the tenets of our Christology. I don't know in all the ways and all the arguments of this and that doctrine and those things. He said, who's Jesus? He said, I'm Jesus. He said, I do believe because I know who you are. And there's never been anything that's done, anybody that's done for me what you've done for me. Listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not heralding ignorance. I'm just telling you, you don't have to have a degree to be a faithful witness. You just need to know who Jesus is. That's all that he's saying to us here. Jesus came to give eternal life, not just to make life better for people. And here's what I love about what Jesus asked. Jesus didn't ask, are you thankful? Jesus didn't ask, are you happy? Jesus didn't ask, are you determined? He asked this, do you believe? Do you believe? You see, friends, salvation is determined by this one thing. Do you believe in Jesus as God's Son and Savior so that you place your life under His Lordship? True belief always produces two things, worship and faithful witness. Worship and faithful witness. Jesus saves us and He sends us. We worship Him and we witness of Him. It's that simple. It's that simple. When the saving work of Jesus is present in a life, that life will reflect it. You see, Jesus didn't save us just to tell other people what he could do to us, right? Well, man, he healed me. My cornea is whole and it's healthy. The doctor said I got a good bill of health, and right? No, no. But to tell people that God sent Jesus and died to save us, it's what he's done for us. Salvation brings us into a relationship with God that's demonstrated by a life of worship and faithful witness. This is our new perspective, our third new perspective on God's work in the world that gives us this understanding. God's work goes forth when those he saves share a faithful testimony. Friends, this is so dynamic and it is so incredibly powerful. There is no marketing campaign in the world that can equal this simple strategy. When every Christian worships the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their life and tells the whole world that they have opportunity to what he's done for them. The fourth is this, because guess who's still hanging around? That's right, the Pharisees, verse 39. Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Here's the fourth perspective that gives us new understanding. We see that some claim to see, and yet they still miss Jesus' work. He responds to the Pharisees. He said, I didn't come to judge people. I came to judge sin. But we live under judgment of sin in this world because our guilt remains. That's what shows us we're still under sin. And it demonstrates that we're blind to Jesus. And you see, if the Pharisees had asked that question at the end, like the disciples asked their question at the beginning... 
It would have made all the difference. But they had no intention of hearing what Jesus said, for they were being arrogant and belligerent in their hardness towards Jesus. Friends, here's what we see. Jesus gives sight to the blind when they confess their need of him, but he blinds the religious and the self-righteous, those who trust in themselves and who will confess that they have no need of him. You see, see means believe. Blind means unbelief. And we are spiritually blind when we think that we have no need of God for whatever reason. He's not real. He couldn't do anything for me. We remain spiritually blind when we go, well, you know, I'm okay with God. I'm a good person. And God has to regard me. He has to respect me. I'm a good person. I do a lot of good things. We remain spiritually blind in unbelief when we say, I don't need God because he can't really do all that I need him to do. Or he can't do or won't do what I want him to do. We remain spiritually blind in unbelief when we say, well, I can do, I can earn, I can achieve, I can succeed, I can survive on my own. I don't need God. We remain spiritually blind in unbelief when we say, I know God and I don't need anyone else to tell me anything. That's spiritual unbelief, friends. This is the hardest aspect of ministering in a culture that is so familiar with Christianity. Because so much of this is prevailing as solid theology when it is partially true but wholly wrong. Knowledge about God that is accompanied by guilt from sin, hear me, demonstrates a false belief and a lack of true salvation. Listen to me, friends. I want to clarify eternal life for you in this moment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And where no condemnation remains, no guilt can reside. If guilt is a defining reality of your heart, it is very likely, no matter how innocently you might have gotten into it. That eternal life by faith in Jesus is not the reality of your life. Have you addressed your guilt? Because Jesus says when guilt remains, blindness, unbelief is the prevailing presence. Jesus is not showing us his power to heal the physical body or to correct all of the brokenness in this physical world. He is commissioning us as Christians to move out into the darkness and to declare his glorious light. We have a greater hope than everything being right in this world. It is being right with God. And what he is trying to say to us in the ninth chapter of John is, Christian, wake up, wake up. 
For if we fix all the problems in this world of which there are no small measure and we should never disregard or distance ourselves from them, but we should move in to minister the hope of Jesus, but we should not stop by fixing the needs of this world. We need to move in with the light of eternity and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings eternal life into the reality of the darkness of this world. And what I am laboring for you today is not just a hope that Jesus can fix your calamity in this life. I will pray for your healing. I will anoint you with oil in prayer for your healing and prayer to make right whatever is wrong in this life. But we cannot stop believing that this life holds our hope. It is eternity with God through the Lord Jesus Christ that saves us from our sin, redeems us from its brokenness, and delivers us from its condemnation and guilt that is our only ultimate hope and until you have that hope in Jesus because you believe in him and you worship and witness as a result of it you remain in darkness let's pray Spirit of God, we ask that you would help us this morning. There is so much in this world that confuses us, even like the disciples were confused, innocently confused, ignorantly confused. But God, when your spirit speaks, you clear the confusion and you bring conviction. And God, I ask this morning that you would open blind eyes to see. God, you would reveal yourself to us that we might believe and know you as you have come to be known. Help us even now.